Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. And I'm Isabel. And unfortunately, we are not going to be joined by Is today. She's on a little bit of a hiatus because she's got a very busy life. So uh, hopefully you're listening there, Is, and we deliver some great content for you. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about forensic archaeology. So we've talked about forensic anthropology in the past, but they are different. So uh, Isabel, do you want to take us away on what is forensic archaeology? I do. So forensic archaeology is different from forensic anthropology in a sense that it's less lab analysis of bones and it's more finding the remains and processing the scenes. So basically it's the application of archaeology to a forensic um, context. So again, there's an emphasis in archaeology. Um, the excavation is based on detailed analysis, the same as, say, an archaeological excavation. Um, so some people both do both forensic anthropology and forensic archaeology. Just depends on the jurisdiction. Some some places the body might be just handed off to a medical examiner. Um, I don't know another example, but basically, yeah, it totally depends on context, what's going on with the body and stuff like that. So forensic archaeology is also in comparison to, I don't want to call it regular archaeology, academic but archaeology. yeah, <laughs> academic or um, CRM, either. Of those yeah. Types, yeah. Um, so it's a lot, I'm not gonna say a lot more flexible, but it is more flexible and less rigid than that type of archaeology because it can be super unpredictable and you have to be able to adapt to any context. So whether the burial is regular out in the woods, like in a field, um, or they're in the water, in a swamp, sometimes there's contexts where they're buried underneath concrete. Basically any scenario you can think of, a forensic archeologist has to adapt to that in order to maintain the same standards of archeology span while still um, maintaining the, oh my gosh, I'm losing the words. <laughs> um, basically not disturbing the remains so that forensics can happen. Yeah. So um, they're always trying to do non-destructive analysis and recording before doing anything destructive. So there's not a hard and fast order to anything and you must adapt based on the crime scene. Also, it's a highly, highly interdisciplinary um, field wherein there's just so many different people from different fields of work working together. And yeah, you're going to get, like, <laughs> geotech people and, like, archaeologists, obviously, <laughs> anthropologists, criminal people who study, Yeah, who study bugs, <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, entomologists. Yeah, tons of people on the scene. Um, so the, the steps aren't exactly, um, like, oh, this is first step, second step. Like, it really depends on the context. But generally, one of the first things that a forensic archaeologist is going to do is they're going to locate an area of interest. So like Isabel said, they're always gonna start with non-destructive techniques because excavation is destruction. So they'll start with a search plan and different types of areas require different search techniques. So if I'm in a barren field, it's gonna be really different than if I'm underwater, for example. It can be different equipment needed, different techniques, that sort of thing. So they're first gonna do a preliminary reconnaissance um, and they're just going to take a look at what they have to work with. They're going to determine some boundaries. So uh, the search will go from here to here. Um, and they'll do that by looking at some photos, maps, some natural land features. They'll always plan with and around natural land features. 
and they'll consider the case in light of the surroundings. Um, so maybe, you know, if they're working with the body of water and they're trying to find a body, the body might be in the body of water. Or um, maybe there are caves, maybe the body's going to be in a cave. Um, so they're going to consider the case in light of what is there naturally. Um, there are different types of non-intrusive searches. So, for example, there's a foot search. And you can go on a foot search in different patterns. So different patterns have different amounts of coverage. For example, there's a line search, which has 100% coverage, which would be great for if you're in like a wide open space. But if you're somewhere where there are obstacles like trees, you might want to do something like a grid search, which gives you 200% coverage and you're looking from different angles. Uh, there's also a spiral search, which is exactly what it sounds like. You go in a spiral shape. And the type of search that you're going to use depends wholly on visibility, obstacles, and terrain. So in general, searching is going to be like shoulder to shoulder. You might be on your hands and knees, ruffling through the grass, not very comfortable. Ask me how I know. <laughs> um, you're you're going to look in 3D. So um, you're going to look up. Like there could be stuff that was brought by birds into trees. Like um, stuff could be like hanging on a branch. So you're going to look completely not just like on the ground, you're going to look in your entire 3D space. And you're also going to continue or consider how evidence might be affected by taphonomy. So um, running water might bring evidence somewhere, or a bird might fly evidence somewhere, gravity might push something down a hill. Um, not push it, but like gravity, like bringing it down the hill. <laughs> um, you're also, during the search, you're going to start looking for surface deposits and indicators of a burial. Um, and that can be through like burial outlines, divots from dirt compression, piles of dirt or leaves, plant differences. Like if you've got like really old plants and you've got like this like body shaped outline of like little sproutlings, then maybe the body's there. Not suspicious at all. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like vegetation differences. Um, oh, and the human thorax collapses, which can create a depression at a certain area of the grave. So that's fun. Uh, you're also gonna try and find surface indicators such as odor from decomposition, exposed evidence, indication of scavenging, like if an animal has tried to bring up the body. Um, and remember, people may have placed the body in a natural, natural depression. So you might not always see that nice divot where the body is and the soil has compressed. Yeah, so there's tons of search tools and techniques that forensic archaeologists use to find and uncover bodies. Um, so cadaver dogs are super useful um, in these searches because they can actually detect human decomposition odor um, and differentiate it from animals. Um, <laughs> make a list, but that's it. <laughs> animal. <laughs> um, but this technique is only valid if, I think, if the temperature is above zero, because otherwise I'm pretty sure the odors are, like, you're frozen, so I don't think you give off as many odors as if it's <laughs> above zero. Um, so it's also cool enough, they can also detect odors in the water, which is so interesting. I Pretty think. cool. <laughs> Um, there's also geophysical methods for grave detection, including ground penetrating radar or GPR. Um, yeah. 
electromagnetic induction and electric electrical resistivity. <laughs> resistivity. Yeah. <laughs> can't read um so all those i'm not going to go into extreme detail of what they are but basically they measure the amount of con- electric conductivity in the ground i think i yeah, think so different ones do different things like a gpr yeah. is kind of like it'll measure like you can see like kind of if there's a disturbance it like, like pings back to it I yeah think. yeah um resistivity i believe that a grave is more resistive than its surrounding ground i think due to probably mm-hmm. decomposition yeah but yeah yeah um so there's also evidence detection such as uh, metal detectors so they can look for stuff like guns or maybe jewelry just anything that's abnormal in the ground it's made of metal um there's also a point where we may use more destructive search techniques um such as a full-on backhoe can come in there and scrape off parts of the earth and expose what's underneath um there's also probe searches with something called a t-bar which is exactly as described and you're just feeling if the ground is disturbed so it's pretty subjective but basically they're going around poking holes in the dirt trying to find places that have less resistance because if someone recently dug a hole there and put a body in it the soil is going to be a lot more aerated than the compact surrounded surrounding soil a penetrometer <laughs> yeah penetrometer is the same sort of thing as the probe except it's not subjective it's quantitative gotcha and then there's also shovel shining and searches which is removing a thin layer of soil um, to see a burial outline. So it's literally shining shovel across the top of the soil to take off just centimeters at a time, if that, and making sure not to go down too quickly to disturb anything. So now that we've done all this investigative work into finding a body, say we've now found a scene. The next thing we're going to do is interpret the context of the scene. Um, So archaeology, any type of archaeology, is all about context. So the first thing we want to be able to tell is, is it even forensic? So maybe sometimes you don't even have to find a scene. Uh, Joe Bob was walking his dog and saw a body and called the authorities, and the scene is found for you, (laughs) Um, and you have to determine if it's forensic. So a lot of things will stop here. It'll be, nope, this isn't forensic. Um, and then done. Um, If it's not forensic, there are some different things it could be. It could be ritual, uh, it could be medical, like a disposal of medical cadavers or specimens, could be historical, like a historical cemetery, or prehistoric. Um, The timing for forensic cases, so how far ago was considered forensic, depends on the jurisdiction. Um, but another part of the scene context is trying to determine if it's a surface deposit or if it's a burial. So surface deposits can be primary or secondary, and burials can be primary or secondary uh, or multiple. So a primary uh, deposit would be like the person's body. Uh, I believe they were killed there, they were left there, and that's where they decompose. Secondary would be if somebody came back and moved the body or reinterred it uh, somewhere else. Um, Also, secondary deposits can be caused by animals who would just like, you know, take the femur and bring it home. 
Um, <laughs> uh, you're also going to want to look at the position of the body, um, like directionality. If the body's flexed, what position is it in? And of course, the preservation of the remains. So is it decomposing? Uh, if so, what stage is it at? Uh, are the remains skeletonized? Uh, are they cremated? Have they been affected by taphonomy? And taphonomy is something that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, and you're also going to look at associated artifacts and evidence um, that can maybe give you some clues about maybe who the person was or about their death, different things like that. Yeah, so it's really important to do a lot of mapping and documenting because it's, again, it's all about details and not missing anything. Um, so this happens throughout the entire process before you even start digging, people are mapping and documenting because um, you're constantly drawing and, uh, oh my gosh, taking photos and basically you just can't um, miss anything, right? So the whole process needs to be documented especially in these legal contexts. So we use tools to help us do this, um, for example, measuring tapes and total stations, which basically just give you, a total station is just a point that you work off of from that, like whether it's up, down, left, right. Directionality. <laughs> Super, and, um, uh, yes, thank you. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also, this is rough. Um, numbered flags, which are placed where surface finds are found to help keep organization of where stuff is. These flags can also be um, documented in a GPS system. Um, and the documentation needs to be admissible as evidence in a court of law. Yeah, that's a huge part about forensics is that it has to be unquestionable um, for the court. So uh, next thing we're going to do is we're going to do some excavation and collecting. Um, and this will be very similar to the kind of techniques you'd use in academic archaeology or bioarchaeology. You're going to dig horizontally, then vertically, layer by layer. And here context is really easy to lose. So again, like Isabel said, recording and documenting is key with photos, drawings, um, even the location of the bones relative to one another, uh, which can indicate the position of the body, the burial outline itself will get lost when you um, excavate. You might need to pedestal remains, which kind of when you dig around the remains and you build them their own little pedestal. You're going to start carefully packing up and labeling remains and evidence according to anatomical features. Yeah, so there's um, some certain things that are really important for a forensic archaeologist to consider. And as we talked about earlier briefly, there's taphonomy. And I know we've discussed this in probably a few shows now, but just go over briefly what this is in this context. So taphonomy is just changes that happen to remains after death. Um, and they're really beneficial in figuring out what happened to the remains after they were disposed of. So there's different types of taphonomy, such as weathering processes, so stuff like soil staining, sun bleaching, um, cracking and flaking. There's also root etching that can like make the bones look all wacky. Um, carnivore activity. So as Katie said, maybe a wolf came and took the femur away back home. <laughs> so this would, I mean, the femur would obviously be gone in this instance, but you can also see carnivore activity in punctures and other tooth patterns. Um, and it's important to differentiate from sharp force trauma in, again, these legal contexts. 
Um, rodent activity will show up as striations on the bone. Very distinguishable. Um, and oh, yes, plant activity, root etching, like I said, <laughs> feathering. Um, so, taphonomy can inform you a lot about seam, seam deposition. Um, so, what happened to the body after death? Has it always been here? How long has it been here? It's really beneficial, again, with that secondary and primary um, deposit. That's really an important aspect of forensic archaeology and determining death scenarios. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that a forensic archaeologist might encounter is cremated remains or cremains. So cremains can be commercial, uh, which they probably are not in a forensic context, or they could be uh, an at-home job. <laughs> Don't know how to put DIY. That. <laughs> <laughs> do, do not recommend. Do not do at home. Um, do not condone DIY fires. <laughs> um, but cremation context, it could be like from an accident, not even an intentional cremation, like a fire or explosion, or. Uh, possibly one of our more malicious ones, a cover-up in a homicide, um, or for litigation purposes, looking at cremains after somebody has obviously been cremated um, to find things out about them for a law case. So bones look different depending on what temperature they're burned at, um, and it's important to note that the DIY fire is not going to reach the same temperature as an industrial furnace. So you're not going to get those lovely ashes that you get from the crematorium if you're doing your own cremation. Also notable is that uh, DIY cremations won't go through a cremulator. So when you get uh, industrially cremated, you go through something called a cremulator after, which makes your bones nice and sandy into that stuff we all know as ashes. but they're actually bone fragments before it goes through the cremulator and so DIY jobs won't have that so uh, in that sense it might be a bit more identifiable um, based on the bones you might be able to identify some you know some long bones or something like that Uh, but in general cremated remains are really hard to analyze Um, in forensic or no Archaeology, I'm glad I caught that. Um, (laughs) Forensic archaeology in general, uh, one of the biggest applications is in mass graves and human rights abuses, for example, genocides. Um, So in that case, the key thing to do is to identify the victims and ensure that those responsible are brought to justice. It will often rely on witness testimony. So somebody might be interviewed like, I saw so-and-so killing so-and-so and burying them under this large tree. And then a forensic archaeologist will have to take that witness testimony and find a site and do the excavation based on that. So in a mass grave excavation, which might not necessarily be a human rights abuse, it could be something like a plague pit, um, but that wouldn't be forensic. Um, But it's going to be, you're going to look at how many people there are, the minimum number of individuals, where does the grave end? And a huge problem in mass graves is uh, there's intermingling. So bones get kind of tangled together. Uh, There might be some clothing. There might be pieces of soft tissue still. So it kind of becomes like pickup sticks, but with bones. Um, Yeah. 
Cool. So in these applications, um, something really important that we can use in our forensic archaeology is the use of DNA. So um, if these individuals are decomposed greatly and there's no identifying features um, or artifacts, they have to have another way to identify the individuals. So you can go through and do DNA analysis of the bones um, or surrounding evidence actually, but I'll get to that. Um, so you actually do have to have a relative and have their DNA um, to compare to, otherwise it's not very useful because you can't just, it's not that simple as just taking DNA and being like, this is like, you, <laughs> there's nothing to match it to. It's essentially not useful at all. So when you have, say, a brother or a mother, whatever it is, um, when you take, sorry, I'm not an expert in DNA at all. This is like super rough. Also, if anybody hears anything, that's my dog in the background. She, she's talking. So I'm sorry about that. That's so cute. It only adds to it. She should talk, not me, honestly. <laughs> this is not my day. Um, no, but basically you need relative DNA to compare forensic DNA to or else it's completely moot because you just, doesn't give you any information. Basically, you're just confirming. I don't know how to say this properly. Yeah, like, you can't compare something if there's nothing to compare it to. Exactly. Jeez, well said. <laughs> so, <laughs> the stuff we can use um, to as a source of DNA is stuff like body fluids and tissue from a victim, um, bone, clothing or other related fabric may have um, DNA on it. There can be soil from the burial and surrounding area can have evidence of DNA. Um, even unnatural and non-organic materials found around the body can have traces of DNA on it. So basically anything that has a surface could have DNA, essentially. Noelle, super helpful. please be quiet. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hopefully she can be quiet for the last five minutes. Um, <laughs> it adds to the humanness of an at-home show. Um, yes, because we're not already. <laughs> sort of <out> <laughs> um, so Kate yeah. and I actually yeah, practiced we, forensic. <laughs> we have. Oh, we're geez. professionals. No, um, we both took a class, field work, uh, field methods in forensic anthropology. So we are trained and archaeology. But uh, did I say anthropology? Yeah. Oh, oh my god. Archaeology, why do I keep doing that? Uh, but we are, we're ready for all your cases out there, so call us for our private uh, investigative services. Um, but yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, uh, I think we both have okay. an appreciation of how difficult the job is, um, because Holy I cow, yeah. remember hands and knees, going through a massive field, through the goose poop, <laughs> like... Say that, and trying to find, like, I remember what we're, okay, there's a knife, we had to find a knife. I found the knife. There's fake fingers. Fingers and marbles. Marbles were so oh, hard to find. And we didn't find them. Basically, no. yeah, our prof lined us up into a line. We we're doing a line search. So it's basically just one foul swoop of the field. <laughs> and yeah, we were on hands and knees. And we were to put up our hands if we came across. And the whole line has to stop. 
Yes, but it's so hard to get everyone to move at the same pace and people are mad at you if you're not going fast oh, yeah. enough or if you're not going slow enough. And It's an exercise in teamwork. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for forensic investigators. I do too. And I'm honestly, in a, in, a, in a real way, I'm very happy that we don't have a lot of need for that kind of thing in Canada. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Because we would be out there. <laughs> You know it, absolutely. <laughs> because it's not, it's so romanticized on TV, it right? Really Again, it's you, I mean, I'm going to use bones as an example. It's oh, not yeah. totally forensic archaeology, it's more forensic anthropology, but it still applies where you go to a scene and you do a few things and then you can leave. But in real life, you're walking through forests for days looking for tiny scraps of evidence and anything that can help you. And it's tedious, tedious work. <laughs> and it's you're out in there in the rain and the cold and getting ticks and yep. <sighs> not a good yeah. time. But no, it's, it's uh, essential. You got to be observant too. But. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, we are already at the end of our show. So it's time for our non-human listeners shout out of the week. So today's shout out is <laughs> shout out. <laughs> today's shout out is to Chicken Cutlet the Gecko. Hi, Chicken Cutlet, also known as Cece. We're happy you listen to our show and enjoy it. Um, join us next time for some more fun anthropology. We've got some fun interviews coming up, so stay tuned for those. And until next time... You got it this time, Katie. Stay bony! Yeah, thanks Bye. everyone for listening. <laughs> Bye! <laughs>